0: Well, good morning, church. My name's Eric. I'm the pastor here. And if you are new with Freedom, whether you're joining us for the first time or you're online with us, one of the things we typically do is teach through books of the Bible. And we are currently in the Gospel of Mark, and uh, we're almost done with the Gospel of Mark. Can you guys believe that? We are just a few weeks away from being done with the Gospel of Mark. We're going to have Jesus' trial uh, before the Sanhedrin today, suffering under Pontius Pilate next week, the crucifixion, and then the resurrection, and bam, that's it. That's the way Mark ends. And so we are going to be finished with the gospel of Mark in just a few weeks. But one of the things we've been doing is we've been focusing on the three days uh, of his his passion. And so we spent, starting in January, just walking through Passion Week. We started with seven days that changed changed the world. And now we're focusing on three days that change everyone. And these three days, if we will really focus on them, if we will really learn from them, they will transform us. They can change us from the inside out. And so we are on Friday of Passion Week, and we started on Friday last week. We're going to spend actually about five weeks just looking on Friday and, of course, Sunday of Passion Week. And so um, we're going to be today in Mark 14, beginning in verse 53. Now, one of the things about Mark, if you've been walking with us throughout this entire study, is that Mark is concise and to the point. I think that's why I like Mark as a gospel, because a lot of men, us men, we're like concise and to the point. Just give me the, what I need to know, and then I can move on, right? Any guys like that? Or just me? So most of you guys. Like, you know, Mark, doesn't. he skips all the language that John uses. John uses a lot of, a lot of details and a lot of, uh, a lot of flowery language. He skips all that. He doesn't do what Luke does. Luke is very precise. He was a doctor. And so he's, he's giving all the details. And just to the, to the, you know, to the point, he's, he's giving every single detail. He's crossing every I, uh, crossing every uh, T, dotting every I. That's what Luke does. Matthew, he's writing to the Jewish people. And so he's giving all this background of, of Judaism and helping them understand the prophecy and all the things that, that uh, Jesus fulfilled. Well, Mark's just like, bam, here's the point. Here's what you need to know. But what I love about Mark is that Mark has a way in his writing of revealing to us who Jesus is, showing us God's grace towards us as sinners, and not only that, but but directly talking to the audience that he's writing to, because if you remember way back from the beginning, we learned that Mark is writing to Christians in Rome, so they're mostly Gentile Christians, and he's writing to these Christians in Rome, teaching them and telling them to remain faithful in the midst of immense persecution. And so that's where we are in Mark. So Mark, in this text today, is is going to, I think in a brilliant way, contrast both Peter and Jesus. And he's going to do so in a way that will teach us how to live faithfully in a fallen world. He's going to take Peter, who who is going to fail Jesus, and he's going to take the fortitude of Jesus is going to stand strong in the midst of suffering. And he's going to contrast these two individuals in order to show us how you and I can live a Christian life, a faithful Christian life. And so in Mark 14, we see this text and we see what I want you to what I want you to see in this text are two rocks. The first rock you have is Jesus. Jesus Christ, the rock on which we stand, the solid rock. Paul called him the firm foundation. Paul also called him the spiritual rock that our faith is built upon. So you have on one side, you have Jesus, the rock of our salvation, the foundation of our faith. And on the other side, you have Peter. Now, Peter's name was Petros, which means rock. And it was a name given to to Peter, who was Simon before him. But Jesus said, you will be Peter the rock, and he gave him that name based on the profession that that Peter gave when Jesus asked, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the Messiah. And Jesus says, upon that rock, upon the foundation of that declaration, of that confession that I am the Messiah, I will build my church. So from that moment on, they called Peter Petros called Simon Petros, which means Peter. So you have on one side, you have rock, the rock of Jesus, who stands strong in the midst of suffering. And on the other side, you have Peter, Petros, the rock who crumbles in order to save his life. These two rocks are contrasted in this text today to show us and to reveal to us how we can live faithfully in the midst of, of a fallen world in the midst of suffering, in the midst of the challenges that we face. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Mark chapter 14. And we're going to pick up in verse 53. And it says this. And they led Jesus to the high priest. And all the chief priests and all the elders and all the scribes, they all came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now, let's stop right there. Because as we read this passage, keep in mind those two rocks. And we're going to contrast them to learn how you and I can live a Christ-centered, mission-focused life. But what Mark does in these first two verses, he sets the scene. It's way past midnight on Friday morning. Early, early Friday morning. Jesus was arrested somewhere around midnight. So this may be 1, 2 in the morning. And somehow without electricity, without anything like that. They couldn't text them, but somehow the Sanhedrin, which was 70 people strong, 70 members of the Sanhedrin, all gathered together in the middle of the night at the home of Caiaphas, the high priest. And so they're all gathered together, and they put together this kangaroo court. And what they do is they gather this, this court, and the, if you don't know who the Sanhedrin are, are the Sanhedrin were the the... the Jewish legal experts. They were experts in the law. They they oversaw all of the the legality of the Old Testament law. And so so these men, they gathered together in Caiaphas' house, and they put together the first of six trials that Jesus will endure. Every single one of these trials are unjust. Every single one of these trials are illegal. In fact, this trial goes against Jewish law in several ways, just to name a few. First of all, Jewish law said you cannot have a trial at night. So they didn't want like these secret trials going on. So they're like, "You can't have Jewish law." God said, "You cannot have trials at night." Well, guess what? It's in the middle of the night. Not only that, they said that if you if you if you have a trial, there must be two witnesses that that reconcile each other's stories, that collaborate each other's stories. As we'll see, they're not going to have that either. Jewish law said that a, that a capital offense which is what they're bringing up against Jesus. They're accusing Jesus of a capital offense, an offense worthy of death. And Jewish law said that a capital offense could not be tried during Passover. Well, guess what day this is? Passover. And these guys have completely forsaken their own law in order to put Jesus on trial. But not only that, they said that if you did have a guilty verdict of a capital offense... Jewish law required that the Sanhedrin meet a second time for a second session in order to ensure that the trial was fair. So look what these guys are doing. They are doing anything and everything they can to forsake their own law. It would be like our judicial system, our, our Senate, our Congress, forsaking every single law just so they could get their way. Wait, that never happens, does it? Never mind, We're not, we won't get into that. Uh, but uh, anyway... But what Mark tells us is that that's what's going on. That's the picture of what's happening. But then he says that Mark tells us that, that Peter was also there. Sometime after fleeing from the garden in Gethsemane, Peter somehow sneaks his way into the courtyard of Caiaphas, the high priest. Now, this is a pretty commendable act. I mean, think about it. Everybody had forsaken Jesus. They had all ran. But Peter said, wait a second. I'm going to go follow at a distance. I'm going to go and least try to get into the courtyard. So he sneaks himself into the courtyard where, where, where Jesus is being tried. And he's at Caiaphas' house. And so this is, a, this is a noble act. What he's doing is it appears, at least at this moment, that he is still committed to the promise that he made. You remember the promise he made? He said, Jesus, I will never forsake you. I don't care what these other guy, 11 guys do. I'm not going to forsake you. So even though he fled in the garden, at least at this moment, at least right now, what Peter is doing—he's—he's he's back at the courthouse, a uh, courtyard, trying to be there for Jesus, trying to do what he's what he what he what he said he was going to do. Now Peter goes to this courtyard, goes to Caiaphas's house at great risk. I mean, think about it. Just an hour or so early, earlier when the mob came to arrest Jesus, what does Peter do? He takes out his sword and whacks off Malchus's ear. Now, I don't know about you, but if, if I'm in a crowd, in a mob, and somebody chops off another guy's ear, I'm probably going to recognize the dude that's wielding the sword. Like, I want to be mindful of that guy, because I don't want to be near that guy if he gets the, gets the inkling to start swinging the sword again. Well, that's what Peter does, and so Peter goes into this, no doubt that somebody in that mob, because they were all there, they were all in the courthouse, no doubt somebody would recognize him. So he goes to Caiaphas' Caiaphas's house, and puts himself in grave danger, even though he had blown it just an hour or so earlier in the garden. But then Mark says that he was warming himself by the fire, which I think is significant. It seems like, oh, that's kind of simple, but think about this. Have you ever stood by a fire in the middle of the night, and you're warming yourself by the fire? What gets illuminated when you warm yourself by the fire? Your face. So Peter wasn't necessarily trying to hide in this moment. He wasn't trying to like be in the shadows. He's actually warming himself by the fire. His face is being illuminated by the flames. It's inevitable in this moment that Peter is going to be recognized. And so the stage is set for what Mark is going to do in this contrast between these two rocks. Jesus, the firm foundation. Petros, the who is going to crumble. But we're going to see this contrast in these two gentlemen. And I think this this teaching that Mark is trying to provide for the church in Rome is essential and important for you and I as well if we want to live a Christ-centered, mission-focused life. Let's pick up on the text. It's uh, verse 55. Now, the chief priest and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. So they came for this trial in order to put Jesus to death. That's their goal, to put him to death. But they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands and in 3 days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this their testimony did not agree. So let's stop right there. So what we've got what we have here is the Sanhedrin. They've got the best false witnesses money can buy. And they've got these false witnesses and they they are trying to accuse Jesus and nothing's sticking. I mean everything is is coming up short. They they're trying everything they can in order to convict Jesus, and nothing is working. Not, this trial is going nowhere. In fact, they even twisted Jesus' words, because if you, if you go to the Gospel of John, Jesus does say that, he is going to, that if you destroy this temple, he will rebuild it. What he doesn't say is this temple made by hands will be created one with, as one without hands. So they add words to Jesus, and they twist his words, because Jesus wasn't talking about the temple in Jerusalem. And it was a capital offense. If you were to destroy the temple in Jerusalem, that would be worthy of death. But that's not what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about in the context of that conversation where he says that he's talking about his body. And we're going to see that they're going to destroy his body. And three days later, he's going to raise it again. So what is Jesus doing? He's talking about the resurrection. But yet they twist his words and they use his words against him. And none of it works. None of it sticks. As far as the Sanhedrin were concerned, Jesus is guilty until proven innocent. And there is absolutely no way this man is going to be found innocent. So they are trying anything and everything they can to convict Jesus. The problem is, this trial is not going as planned. They thought they could get a few false witnesses, throw them on on trial in the middle of the night, Trial would be over, Jesus would be uh, found guilty, and it would be done. But it's not working. None of it's working. In fact, the fact that they don't have any witnesses that that, uh, that collaborate their testimonies, the trial should have been dismissed. Jesus should have been acquitted at this moment. But they're not going to give up. So what happens next? The high priest, Caiaphas, himself stands up and begins to question and interrogate Jesus. So let's let's pick up in verse 60. And the high priest stood up in the midst of them and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? So he's saying to Jesus, listen, aren't you going to say something? Aren't you going to defend yourself? These guys are throwing testimony against you. Aren't you going to do something about it? Look what happens. But Jesus remained silent and made no answer. So think about this. The high priest is like, God, listen, Jesus, these guys are, are, are throwing all this testimony against you. Aren't you going to do something? Aren't you going to stand up for yourself? Why don't you just say something? Refute their testimony. And Jesus does nothing. Why? What is Jesus doing in this moment? He is fulfilling Old Testament prophecy. Isaiah 53 verse 7 says this. Isaiah 53 7 says, He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet, he what? Opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that was led to the slaughter. Like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. Like even right here, Jesus is fulfilling Old Testament prophecy. And Caiaphas at this moment is at his wit's end. Like he's got nothing else. I mean, he is like, we came to convict him. We had Judas set up. We betrayed him. This thing is supposed to work and it's not working. So Caiaphas is at his wit's end. And according to Matthew's gospel, Caiaphas actually makes Jesus swear an oath to tell the truth on this next question that he asks. Look at verse 61 again. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Are you the Messiah, and are you the Son of God? So Caiaphas, in this moment, asked Jesus and says, I, I want you to swear by God that you will tell the truth. This is the way Matthew puts it. And he says, Are you the Christ? That's obviously a reference to the Messiah. Are you claiming to be the Messiah? But then he says this, Are you the Son of the Blessed? Which means, are you claiming to be God himself? Are you claiming to be God? Because the Messiah and God did not necessarily have to be the same. But yet, Jesus in this moment is going to answer him. He doesn't have to. He doesn't have to answer. In fact, there have been many times... Uh, throughout the Gospel of Mark, where Jesus has told people and he's told demons not to reveal his identity. He's told them to remain quiet, to not say anything. But Jesus, in this moment, he says, the time has come for me to reveal who I am. And apparently, based on Caiaphas' question, he and the rest of the Sanhedrin understood that Jesus claimed to be both the Messiah and God. Otherwise, he wouldn't have asked him both of those questions. And then verse 62, Jesus answers him. And he said to him, I am. I am the long awaited Messiah. I am the son of God. And then he uses this language from Daniel 7 and Psalm 110, which are prophetic languages about God himself and about the Messiah. And he says this, and the son of you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. So Jesus makes sure that they understand exactly who he's saying that he is. It's not enough that he says, I am. I am the Son of God. I am the Messiah. But then he uses that language that immediately they would have gone to, Daniel 7, Psalm 110, and they would have known without a shadow of a doubt that Jesus in that moment was claiming to be both the Messiah and God. Well, look what happens next. All chaos breaks out because of that confession verse 63 and the high priest tore his garments and said what further witnesses do we need i mean caiaphas has lost all sense of composure that he had and he's ripping his garments and he's yelling what do what else do we need you have heard this blasphemy what is your decision and they condemned him as deserving death and look at verse 65 and some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, Prophesy, and the guards received him with blows. Think about this moment. Jesus proclaims to be the Messiah, the Son of God, and the Sanhedrin, knowing the scriptures, condemn him to death. And then they begin to beat him. Then they begin to mock him. Then they begin to spit on him. So what they're doing, they cover up his face and somebody will punch him and say, hey, tell us who that was. Somebody else will punch him. Hey, tell us who that was. Prophesy. If if you are God, then tell us who hit you. And then they would spit on him. Now, I don't know about you, but my my three days of suspension in high school were because somebody spit on me. One of my good friends, actually, thought it would be funny to spit on me. I don't know about you, but that is the most disgusting, degrading thing anyone could ever do. So, Tony spit on me, I followed him to the bathroom, and we finished it with fist, which resulted in three days of suspension, which was good because we were actually good friends so we just hung out with each other, but don't <laughs> tell our parents because they were at work. Um, but anyway, this, that's, that is how disgusting and degrading this moment is. They are beating him, spitting on him, mocking him. Then it says the guards take in, they jump in. Oh, this is fun, let's all join in. But the question we have to ask ourselves is how? How did Jesus endure such suffering? How did Jesus remain strong, remain that firm foundation in the midst of, of this suffering? How did he go unmoved? How did he endure? Well, I believe the answer is found in first Peter two. See, I think Peter in this moment is reflecting on the night's events. I think he's recounting what he saw in that courtyard. And in first Peter chapter two, Peter tells us why he believes that that Jesus remained strong. And he says this when he was reviled, He did not revile in turn in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to the to him who judges justly. Do You see what Peter is saying? He's saying the reason that Jesus stood strong. Now, if you remember, the gospel of Mark is is many believe is Peter's account of Jesus's life. And so then in first Peter two, he's saying, listen, as I look back on that moment, as I look back at what Jesus endured, the reason he endured it, the reason he was able to 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 remain strong, to remain steadfast, to to have this fortitude in his spirit was because he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Who is that? It's God the father. Jesus was able to endure this. He was able to face this suffering. He was able to remain rock solid in the midst of suffering. Why? Because he placed his trust, his faith, his security, everything, his reliance upon God, his Father. Because Jesus had to face the cross in all of his humanity. And the reason Jesus was able to stand strong before the Sanhedrin the reason he's going to be able to stand strong next week before Pontius Pilate, and the reason he's going to endure the cross is because he did not rely on his human flesh, but he relied completely and totally upon God his Father. If you remember last week, what did Jesus say? Not my will, but yours be done. Not my will, but yours be done. Not my will, but yours be done. See, in this moment, Jesus is the perfect example for you and I and anyone else who wants to live out their faith in a hostile and falling world. He's the perfect example for any of us. If you want to remain strong in the midst of suffering, look to Jesus in this moment. He, he stopped relying. He didn't rely on his own strength, but he relied and set his complete dependence upon God the Father. And if you and I want to remain strong, if you and I want to remain faithful, if you and I want to endure, what do we have to do? We have to stop trusting in ourselves. We have to stop living the Christian life in our own strength. We have to stop relying on ourselves and place our complete dependence upon God the Father. We have to say, I surrender my will to His will. In other words, the key to living the Christian life is abiding in Christ. We're going to talk a little more about that in just a few moments. But that is the key that Jesus shows us. That if we want to live a consistent Christian life, we must abide in Christ. So let's look at Peter. I told you we we're going to contrast two rocks. We had Christ, the solid rock, and then Peter, the fallen rock. Look at verse 66. And as Peter was below in the courtyard one of the servant girls of the high priest came and seeing Peter, (coughs) warming himself, she looked at him and said, you also were with the Nazarene, Jesus. Verse 68. But he denied it saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out to the gateway and the rooster crowed. That didn't wake him up. It should have, shouldn't it? And the servant girl saw him again. So she comes around again and sees him again. And she began to say to the bystanders, so now she's starting to ask other people, hey, I think that guy was, was with Jesus. I think he was with him. And look what happens. This man was one of them. But again, he denied it. And after a little while later, the bystanders now get in on the act. And they say to Peter, certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse upon himself and to swear, I don't know this man of whom you speak. Let's stop right there. What is happening? Hours earlier, Peter had told Jesus, Jesus, I got your back. You ever had somebody tell you, you got, I got your back? Like, if you tell somebody you got your back, you're expecting them to go to battle with you. You're expecting them to stand up for you, to be there for you, right? I mean, if somebody says, I got your back, and you're like, hey, he's back there, and I, and I'm not, I don't have to worry about what's in front of me because this guy's got my back. Well, he didn't have Jesus' back, did he? Even though Peter said, Jesus, I will die for you. And Jesus goes, nope, you're not going to deny me. In fact, you're going to deny, you're not going to die for me. In fact, you're going to deny me. And three times, Peter denies Jesus. The first denial we see here in this text, he claims ignorance. Look what he says, I don't even understand what you're saying. I don't understand what you're talking about. He says, neither do I understand what you mean. So he's like, I, I don't know what you mean. He tells the servant girl, I don't, I don't get what you're talking about. He, he claims ignorance. He plays the ignorant card. He could have stood up. And he could have t- made his stand. He could have been faithful. He could have declared his loyalty. But instead, before this servant girl, he plays ignorance. He says, I don't even know what you're talking about. Following Jesus. I don't, I don't know what you're talking about. Well, let's look at the second denial. The second denial, he progresses. So he goes from ignorance to shame. He's ashamed of Jesus in the second moment. What we have here is this servant girl to go into the bystanders around there. And she's saying, hey, I think that guy was with Jesus. I think that guy was one of the followers of Jesus. And so all these people are now starting to come to Peter and say, hey, aren't you sure? You're sure you're not one of them? You're sure not one of his followers? And the Greek tense in that verb, means that he kept on denying. So Jesus said he would deny him three times, but actually what this context, the way, Peter, or way Mark writes it, is that he continued to deny. Over and over and over again, he denied it. So somebody, a bystander, would come up and say, you sure? Yep, have nothing to do with it. So he's, he's showing this, this, he's being ashamed to be a follower of Jesus. But look at the third denial. What Peter does is he calls, he calls down a curse upon himself. He's saying, listen, if I am lying, may God strike me dead. That's what he says. And they, because they go to him and they say, listen, your Galilean accent is giving you away. It's like somebody having a Boston accent in Augusta, Georgia. Like, you're going to know the dude is from Boston. (laughs) Like, there's no hiding it. Right, Patrick? That's what you've got here. So they're like, listen, you are, you are clearly a Galilean. So you have to be his follower. And Peter, in that moment, calls down a curse upon himself and said, listen, if I'm lying, I'm dying. And notice, notice what he does. Look at the end of verse 71. He invokes a curse on himself and listen to his quote. I do not know this man. He doesn't even mention Jesus' name. That's how far Peter has gone for self-preservation. That's how much he has gone to deny him. And then verse 72. And immediately, the moment those words come off of his lips, immediately the rooster crows a second time. And in that instance, Peter remembered, before the rooster crows, twice you will deny me three times. Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he broke down. And he wept. One of the other gospel accounts says that he and Jesus locked eyes. After the rooster crowed the second time. Peter. Petros. The rock. Has crumbled under the pressure. He has fallen. From grace. He is. He is completely and totally. Failed. Now this text. We see two rocks. Jesus, the firm foundation. Peter, the rock on which the church has built. The confession of, his, of, his, of Jesus being the Messiah, the rock on which that is, the church is built. One stood strong. The other fell and crumbled. What made the difference? That's the question we have to ask ourselves. What made the difference? So that you and I don't crumble and fall. So that we are able to stand strong. What made the difference? Let's look at Peter first of all. Now Peter was a strong-willed natural leader. I mean, from the moment Peter started following Jesus, he was constantly putting himself in charge. He was, he's just wired that way. You ever been around somebody who's just a wired, natural leader? Like, it doesn't matter what situation they're in. They're just going to step up and lead. That's Peter. That's a commendable trait. That's something that that many of us in leadership would would, would want to be. We want to be natural leaders. We want to be people that will take charge. That's Peter. He's a take charge kind of guy from the moment He started following Jesus. That's what he does. But we also see Peter being impulsive, right? How many times throughout Mark's study of Mark have we seen Peter put his foot in his mouth? We've seen Peter step up and chop an ear off or say something that, that, that Jesus has to rebuke him about. That's Peter. He's impulsive. He's got this, I've got to be number one attitude, Like he's got this competitive thing. Peter is a picture, church, of what it looks like when you and I try to live the Christian life in our own strength. Peter is a picture of what it looks like when we try to live for Jesus without the Holy Spirit's power leading and directing us. That's a picture of who Peter is right now. He is trying to follow Jesus in his own strength. Well, what happens when we try to follow Jesus in our own strength? eventually, inevitably, we will start following him at a distance. And that's what Peter's doing. Why? Because he's doing it out of his own strength. He is a picture of self-dependence. And this is the challenge, isn't it? Because our entire childhood, what are we taught? To be independent. To be self-dependent. And then we give our lives to Christ, and we become a follower of Jesus. And now, what does Jesus tell us to be? dependent upon Him. It's, 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 it goes against everything we've been taught from the time we were little. We've been taught our entire lives, listen, you need to be independent. You need to take care of yourself. You need to, to, to do your own thing. And then we become a follower of Jesus and Jesus says, I want you to depend completely and totally upon me. And so you have Peter who's this picture of self-dependence, but then you have Jesus who's a picture of God-dependence. His, his life is a picture of depending completely and totally upon God the Father. Jesus knew that apart from God the Father, you and I can do nothing. In our own strength, we can do absolutely nothing. But here's the deal. I don't know about you, but I'm like, God, I'm sure I can do something. Anybody else? Just me? Great. Awesome. Awesome. <laughs> But I, we had this like I, I mean I come on God, I mean, I know you said, I know you said we can do nothing apart from you, but I mean i'm a you know pretty smart person i' I've got some talents, some gifts, certainly I can do something, and that's this that's what we have of boston um so you have jesus being this picture no offense Josie. it's just patrick um but you have this picture of god of jesus being god dependent abiding in the father submitting his will to, to to god the father by the power of god so that's this picture you have of jesus that's the contrast that Mark is making. And he's urging the church in Rome, and he's urging you and I to understand the shortcomings of our humanity. And he's urging us to live by moment, by moment, by moment dependence upon God the Father. That's what, Jesus, that's what Mark is showing here. The Apostle Paul put it another way. He said this, but he said to me, my grace is is sufficient for you forget this for my power is made perfect in what weakness my power is made perfect in weakness you want to experience god's power in your life then live in your weakness acknowledge your weakness but so often we want to acknowledge our strength don't we i want to play to my strengths but jesus and mark excuse me paul in this moment says listen God's power is made perfect in my weakness. And then Paul goes on, Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses. That goes against everything, right? Put all your weaknesses on your resume and see how many people hire you. But Paul says, listen, I will boast more gladly in my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. He also goes on to say in second, this is both in Second Corinthians, but he also goes to say goes on to say, but we have this treasure in jars of clay. That's this flesh, this body that we have, it's just jars of clay. To show, listen to why we have it, to show the all surpassing power is from God and not from us. See, God's grace is sufficient. And he gives that grace to those of us who renounce self-dependency. Those of us who say, Jesus, not my will, but yours. Jesus gives that strength in our weakness. But if we're living in our strengths, if we're trying to do the Christian life on our own, guess what? We're not going to experience his power. We're not going to experience his grace we're trying to do it on our own the only way you and i can live a consistent christian life the only way we can do it is when we stop trusting in ourselves and start trusting in the father the only way we can live a consistent christian life is when we move away from self-dependency and move towards god dependency that's it that's the only way we can live a Christian life. In other words, we have to abide. What does that mean? That means to dwell in, to live with, to rest in, to abide in Christ. Jesus put it this way. He said, you need to deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. That is the only way you and I will live a consistent Christian life. But here's the, th- here's the reality. Oftentimes, we're a lot like Peter, aren't we? Where we try to follow Jesus at a distance. And often, whenever I see myself following Jesus at a distance, I have to reset, okay, what, where, where's my dependence? Am I dependent on me and my strength, or am I dependent on the Holy Spirit's strength? Am I resting in the Holy Spirit's power? Am I abiding in Christ? But here's what I love. If you feel like you're like Peter, if you feel like you've been following at a distance, if you feel like you've been doing the Christian life in your own strength, what I love, and we don't, we don't see it in Mark's gospel, but Jesus doesn't leave Peter in his shame and in his denial. He doesn't leave him in the courtyard weeping. What does Jesus do? He restores him. He meets him on the beach. He feeds him. He says, listen, Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Three times for three denials. He resets the relationship that he had with Peter. And here's the reality, folks. He will do the same thing for you. He wants to do the same thing for you. He wants you to be transformed. And we see Peter in Acts at the day of Pentecost. He is transformed forever. Why? Because now he has the Holy Spirit. Now he is dwelling in the Holy Spirit. So if we want to live Christ-centered, mission-focused lives, we have to rest in the Holy Spirit. We have to allow the Holy Spirit to guide us, to lead us. We must trust Him. We must follow Him. We must depend on Him. If we want to live Christ-centered, gospel-focused, mission-focused lives. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this text and this lesson here in in Mark's gospel. Because the reality, Lord, is we've we've all denied you at times. We've all followed you at a distance. I know I have. I know... We've all tried to live the Christian life in our own strength and our own power, only to fall short, only to fall flat. And Father, I pray that today that you would convict us if we're following you at a distance, that you would reveal to us whether or not we're following you in our own strength and our own power. And Lord help us to submit to you, help us to say to you, Lord, Not my will, but your will be done. Not my strength, but your strength. Lord, I pray that your strength, that strength that comes from the Holy Spirit, would be put on display in each of our lives as we walk in the weakness of who we are. Because apart from you, Lord, we can do nothing. Lord, I pray for anyone here or listening that has never placed their faith in you. They've never trusted you with their salvation. Lord, I pray that today they would just cry out to you and say, Jesus, I need you. I've been trying to live not just the Christian life, but in my life in my own strength. I've been trying to earn my own salvation. I've been trying to, to do it my own way. And Lord, I want to submit to you. I want to surrender to you. Jesus, you are Lord. and I ask that you lead me. So, Father, whatever you're speaking to our hearts, whatever the, the application is, whatever, however you want us to respond, whether it's to give our lives to you for the very first time, or whether it's to reset where we are in our journey and our walk with you, if it means that we need to, to surrender and say, you know what, I'm tired of living the Christian life in my own strength, and I want to, I want to have your strength, Jesus. Whatever that is, Lord, I pray that you would help us to reset that this morning. And whatever you're speaking into our hearts to do, Lord, I pray that you'd give us the courage and the strength to obey. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. amen. Well, church, we're going to conclude our service with a response, a response in worship and a response in communion. And throughout this building, if you've never been here for communion, we have four stations set up. And we just encourage you over this next song to make your way to one of those stations. You can do so with family, you can do so with friends, you can do so individually, but we just want you to go to the table and to pause and to realize that everything Jesus endured. Everything he endured in this text, everything he's going to endure next the next 2 weeks, he did it for you. He endured the cross because of the joy set before him. What joy was that? The joy was so that he could offer us the cup of salvation. This cup that we celebrate every time we take communion. And so scripture says that we're to examine ourselves before we take the cup, before we receive the cup. So we just want to give you just a moment to pause and to examine. Examine your heart. Determine where you are with the Lord. And and if there's something you need to deal with, deal with it. If there's somebody you need to call and reconcile with, call and reconcile with them. If there's somebody you need to to forgive, forgive them. And then come to the table and rejoice in the God of our salvation whose body was broken and whose blood was shed to bring about a new covenant so that we could be reconciled with God. So that we could have His power. So that we don't have to live in our own strength so let's worship him because he is worthy of all of our worship of all of our praise and he did it for you and he did it for me and he deserves our worship and if you're not a follower of jesus christ we just encourage you to stay at your seat today not to partake in the at the table but to just watch observe because the reason we're doing is because we have placed our trust and faith in jesus christ and so nobody's going to single you out if you choose not to receive the cup today. We just encourage you to, to just stay at your seat, listen to the music, observe the, the worship that is going on around you. So church, let's stand, let's worship, let's respond however the Lord is leading you uh, this morning.